Some people may recognize that mm. as the theme from The uh, Outer Limits. Seemed like a, an appropriately spooky yeah. piece of music for a Halloween show, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, sure, why not? You know, some people are Outer Limits people or Twilight Zone people. Um, I you know I enjoyed both. If I if if there was one thing that bugged me a little bit about uh, the thing that I loved about the Outer Limits was really sci-fi. Yeah, yeah. you know it's not not so much you know. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it, it was it was straight up aliens and yeah. spaceships and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, sometimes yeah. it was a little bleak in its uh, it, 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 the way we, we humans would interact with these aliens. Oh yeah. Generally speaking, there would be aliens. We try to kill them. Yeah. Uh, or they try, or, they, or they'd kill. Or, us. or they try to. You, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. like, you like, how come there's never, never just like a nice <laughs> encounter with the aliens? It was all very H.G. Wellsian. Yeah, they they are out there and they're going to get us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it. Twilight yeah. Zone. The thing that bummed me out about Twilight Zone. Love Twilight Zones. I mean, obviously love Twilight yeah. Zones, but yeah. they always ended badly. True. You know, yeah. I mean, just really, just just you, you start a Twilight Zone and you know that this yeah. is going to end badly. No, what the, no matter what the hell is going. Yeah. On. True. Very true. Yeah, yeah. Don't know. Rod had issues. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, we are. Uh, we've we've got a whole ton of giveaways this week. Serious ton of giveaways, and uh, so stay tuned. We'll kind of pepper them through the show. I'm going to start off right away uh, with one that we we uh, pitched on the Facebook page, and uh, we need you to get our uh, to get all of these uh, emails to us. I'm gonna I'm gonna just confirm this on the calendar, and we need all these emails. For all giveaways on the show, need to be to us by Friday the twenty fifth, Friday the uh, Friday October twenty fifth, and uh, then we will. Uh, well, they're all from Paramount too. Paramount's really good to, to us and our listeners. We thank Paramount; they're good people, and um, so get them to us by October twenty fifth. We'll get word to Paramount, and uh, you will um, you'll you'll get your your fun giveaways. I don't know if they'll arrive in time for Halloween, but they'll arrive. And uh, you should send all of these emails to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Uh, the, uh, the one that we've been pitching on the Facebook page is for Crawl. And it's a full kit with all this swag and a poster. Go to the Facebook page. Take a look at the picture. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, if you want to uh, get in on that one, just send us an email with Crawl in the subject line. Crawl. And uh, make sure it gets to us by the 25th, gods at, cin- at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. And uh, we will pick one very happy person to get that crawl giveaway. Really good stuff. Uh, and then we've got uh, three others that we will tout over the course of the show. Um, but let's start off and uh, let's just dive right into it. Was there anything else that happened this week? Anything else worth talking about? Uh, uh, nobody died. Yeah. We usually, we usually <laughs> Not, hit the this Not this week. Not this week. Last week. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a little Man. bit rough, but not, but not, not particularly terrible this week. No, yeah. as we move into the season, um, uh, things season. Uh, the things seem to be sort of leveling off a little bit. A yeah. little bit. Hey, what did you think of malevolence last week? Maleficent. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so here's my here's my vibe on Maleficent because you know my do- my wife loves Sleeping Beauty. It's her favorite Disney film. My daughter loves Sleeping Beauty. It's one of her favorite Disney films. Neither of them had ever seen the original Maleficent. Mm. So we watched it before I had to see the sequel because the question was, do they want to see the sequel? And um, 
my daughter was kind of into it. She's now watched it two more times. Yeah. Despite the fact that it's loaded with violence and a lot of things that would normally freak her out. She knows the story well and is in, is intrigued by the fact that they kind of flip the story a little bit. Mm-hmm. They try to redeem Maleficent a little bit. King Philip is kind of a bad guy right there. It, it's that the story she was familiar with is a little bit reinterpolated. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to her. She's never really seen that happen before. Beauty and the Beast was pretty much the same story. Oh yeah. So this is so now she's this is the first time she's seen oh that you can change a story. I'm not sure she likes it. My wife definitely doesn't. Mm. But it doesn't leave any room at the end for a sequel. It's like what do you now what do you do? Right, because well, what, we work our way up to the other movie, right? Yeah, well yeah. what what happens now is that they they take Maleficent forward and flash backward. And completely rewrite the entire Sleeping Beauty story to the point where it no longer makes any sense. Oh. It's really upsetting. Yeah, see, I hate that. It's really upsetting. You're, you're like, wait a minute. You just completely changed the entire story. It would be as if, it would be as if uh, somebody made a movie about Treasure Island and then did a sequel where you find out that Long John Silver is really a good dude <laughs> and that the treasure was buried by like somebody else mm. and and everything that made the story the story yeah. is now upended yeah. just because we didn't know what else to do so yeah. we're just going to change oh, everything oh not we clever yeah, you no, know, you're, no not you're not clever. Not. Yeah, you're not clever at all. You, you, just, you, you, you sat around, you had some story meetings, and you couldn't come up with anything, so you said, ah, why don't we just mess with people? Yeah. That's yeah. what you're doing. That you're just messing it. with everybody. Yeah, it's, what they do. it's what they do in the DC universe. It bugs the hell out of me. Yeah. Uh, with, you know, where they just completely, they pretend like entire storylines and movies and characters didn't, don't exist. Yeah. And, you know, in this movie, yeah. we're just going to pretend like That's nothing it. happened. That none, of that, none of that happened. And if you want to switch everything up, well, we'll just introduce a new character and yeah. blame it all on them. Yeah, yeah. Wait or, a minute. Or no. move, it, move it to a new dimension. You know what? This is the... Oh, stop. This is the... Shut up. So, so, uh, and my bigger problem is that it's all about the action now. It basically winds up being a Marvel film. Yeah. Uh, Maleficent, Queen of Evil. Uh, well, she's not even that evil in it. That's that's the that's the first thing. She's they're, they're redeeming her. They're making her good. So you know, in the first half has all this really dumb. There's like dumb humor in it. Really misguided humor. Mm. And uh, it winds up being a big old Marvel action film with a big old CGI battle at the end, which I kid you not. Even with all the CGI, it is it is effectively the same scene as the scene in Flash Gordon from 1980 or whatever, yeah. uh, where the where the Hawkmen uh, yeah. raid all the spaceships. Yeah, it's that exact battle, <laughs> not done as well. Uh, oh my gosh, that's just terrible. Yeah, it's just terrible. Yeah, mm. it's that, ex- but it is literally that. Yeah. It is literally that, and I I just watched it. and I just thought this is just unimaginable. CGI really does kill creativity. Oh, it does, and I've been saying it for like twenty years it's now. Just, it, you it, know, it, it's, it's and and what's funny about it is the better it gets, the worse it is. Yeah, which was interesting to me because I you know yeah, when Titanic came out and, you, and those little CGI yeah. people were walking around there, I was like that that's perfectly ludicrous looking. Yeah, uh, and now that would look better, but it would be worse. Yep, uh, and, and 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 that's look. The, Orson Welles said. Uh, the absence of limitations is a death of art. Yeah. And the more convenient they make everything, the more they make it possible to fix it in the timing, fix it in the mix, fix it in CGI, fix it. Oh, well, the, the, the less you feel the need to do it right the first time. First time, time yeah. They, one of the other films we talked, uh, we're, that we are talking about on Film Week uh, today as well, and by the, will be old history by the time this podcast goes up, but is a documentary that's doing a Fathom event, a one-time Fathom event uh, on Tarantino's films. Mm-hmm. 
uh, on the first eight Tarantino films. It does not include Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But it's they got like a lot of people to talk, and it's really interesting. And um, the one did they the, get Robert Forrester? Speaking yes, of people we lost yes, last week, Robert they did. He is, he's all over it. He's yeah. all over it. And uh, no Pam Greer, unfortunately. <sighs> you know that that's a little sad. But uh, Sam Jackson all over this thing. Um, and it's really, it's really oh, Jamie Foxx all over this thing, Tim Roth all over this thing. Mm-hmm. So you know they got a lot of really good people. Um, uh, and uh, what's one thing that's really interesting that they all keep saying? Stacey Sure is in it. Oh, and, and and really very interesting. The producer, yeah. And uh, they say you know Quentin takes his movies so seriously, like so seriously. And some of his directing stuff in it is just absolutely beautiful. Like what he did to Eli Roth. That scene where he he clubs the guy in the head yeah, in, in Glorious Bastards. Yeah. Here's what he did to Eli, and Eli, being a director himself, knew what he was doing. Okay, we're gonna get to you. We got about two hours. We're gonna do the shot in about two hours, where he comes out with a baseball bat and just lays into that dummy and cracks its skull open. And we're gonna get to about two hours. And so Eli, meanwhile, is pumping iron. He's mm-hmm. getting like sweaty, and he's like working. He's just working out in the gym to get ready for when they call him out. And the day comes. It's like, oh man, we're gonna have to do it tomorrow. This went on for five days. <laughs> and, and he said, and I knew what he was doing. He had no intention of bringing me out. He was just going to piss me off for five days and get me so psyched and so pumped that when I came out, I literally was the bear Jew, and I was going to wail into that, that dummy, and, it, and that's why that scene works. Yeah. Because he just pissed him off for five straight days. Psychological, psychological uh, it's, directing. It's you know, really you know, great. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, the one, but the one thing, Stacey sure talks about this, too, is um, – on Quentin's movies, nobody's allowed to have a cell phone. Mm. Leave it in the car. Leave it in your trailer. Leave it in your hotel room, whatever. I don't want any cell phones on the set. Everybody's focused on the movie. And there's no video village. Oh. No video village. There's no, there are no monitors. There's no video tap. Nobody is looking at the framing. Nope. And Quentin's not sitting, you know, half a mile away from what's going on. He's standing right next to the camera mm. like a director from the 1930s or 40s. Yeah. And he's, he's got his headphones on, but he's watching the actors mm-hmm. right there. He's, mm-hmm. He wants to be next to them. And I, I'm like, so old school. I love that. It's <laughs> well, yeah. on film. He's in their faces. He's right there like Cecil B. DeMille. You know, he's still something. making movies. He's still making, he's movies. Still making movies. I love that. Yeah, man. So, yeah. One of the few. One of the few, man. One of the few. One of the few. Man. One of the few. Yeah. So uh, that was really fun. So anyway, let's, let's dive into all the Halloween yeah. stuff. I'm going to start off with uh, Necromantics. I've never heard of these guys. Yeah, neither. Uh, we and talked I know, about and I've this. heard of a lot of wacky ass. <laughs> we talked about this ahead of the show. Anyway, this is a uh, Blu-ray DVD and compact disc set from Cleopatra. And apparently, um, these guys have been like a big deal for 30 years. This is, the, uh, this is Necromantic's Three Decades of Darkle. And uh, it, it, is, it is perfect for Halloween. It is dark stuff. Yeah. Uh, no region coding on this compact disc, DVD, and Blu-ray all together, and uh, yeah, it's it's you know, it, look, it's it's thrashery and it's horrifying, but they're visually they are definitely playing the whole death thing. Like Judas Priest to these guys is like the Disneyland band, <laughs> seriously. So I mean, they call themselves Necromantics with X at the end, and uh, and and the the logo. See, this is the thing you don't notice the logo. Is a coffin with oh, skulls it around is. the edge. See, it is. that took me a yeah. minute to realize yeah. that too. Their logo is a coffin, Necromantics, and then uh, skulls around the side of it. So here are just some of the names of the, so- <laughs> the songs. Um, 
uh, Night Nurse, uh, Alice in Psycholand, Brain Error, uh, what Gargoyles over Copenhagen. Freaking bizarre. Subcultural Girl, Sea of Red, Glow in the Dark, uh, Horny in a Hearse. How's that? <laughs> How's that one? Uh, nice Day for a Resurrection, uh, Haunted Cat House. You know, so there it is. Uh, anyway, these guys are a thing, and uh, a lot of people love them, and I'd never heard of them before. But if, uh, you know, it, not my style of music, but knock yourself out, it might be uh, your style of something. Uh, also, we've got, uh, going to just dive through a few interesting uh, little off titles here. Um, we've got a thing called Momo, the Missouri Monster. Now, yeah. Um, Dude, that was a thing when I was growing up. Was it really? I was yes. going to ask you. I yes. was going to ask you. Yeah, I grew so, up in St. Louis, St. Louis. So, so yes. Momo, Momo is an actual thing. Yeah, it was okay. a thing. And was, yeah, okay. you know, it was like our, our sort of uh, Sasquatchy, Bigfooty okay. sort of Momo. Momo is going to get you. Okay. All right. See, that's what I was wondering was, was it, did they make this up? Because it has kind of a mock documentary feel to yeah. it. Like there's that vibe like you're like, mm, I don't know. This is uh, this feels totally fabricated. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of does. Yeah. Thing, yeah, but but yeah, it's all. It, it kind of takes place in the Louisiana, Missouri. 1972 is uh, is, is when all this kind of starts to transpire, and then um, the uh, they made this movie in 1975, and. Uh, to try to sort of dramatize the 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 Momo sightings thing, anyway, uh, the movie never got released. No, <laughs> it was made imagine. in 1975, <laughs> yeah, I can and it never got released. That's about the time that it was a big old thing, yeah. And uh, it's it's out now, and uh, it's 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 mad cheesy, man. It's really kind of hysterically funny. Uh, the acting's terrible, the directing's terrible, but you know what? It it's. It's heartfelt in a weird kind of way. Uh, so that's interesting. Momo was an actual thing. Well, anyway, yeah. that's Momo the Missouri Monster. If you want a great grindhouse kind of a, kind of a thing for Halloween, there it is. We also have, I love some of these titles, The Velocipaster, <laughs> A Man of the Claw. How's that for a tagline? <gasps> oh the Velocipaster, A Man of the Claw. Uh, this, it, this doesn't even try. <laughs> you gotta be honest. This doesn't even try. So um, this is about a priest who is grief stricken after losing his parents, uh, and he goes to China, where he learns. Are you ready? Yeah. He learns how to turn himself into a dinosaur. But why? You know. Even, uh, you know what? Even if that was something you could do. And then, Why the hell would you? He, and then somehow there's a hooker who's his friend, <laughs> and he's fighting ninjas, and uh, it, none of it really makes any sense at all. Uh, Writer-director Brendan Steer does really seem to clearly understand, uh, given the commentary track, that, they, that this is all just a great big crazy joke, probably drug-induced. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's out there. This is what happens when, you know, it's just too hard to get attention out in the world, and yeah. you, you just come up with completely bananas stuff. Uh, scary Stories, the story of the books that frightened a generation. This also has a director's commentary. This is also from Wild Eye Releasing, like the last one. 
And um, the uh, so scary stories to tell in the dark is the book in question, and uh, really obviously has a has a very long cultural history if you if if you followed it to any degree. So uh, they go to the author's family and they talk to a whole lot of other people, like even R.L. Stein, who created Goosebumps, and uh, try to sort of uh, unravel why scary stories to tell in the dark became more of a thing than anything Lovecraft than anything, you know, uh, a lot of other horror books, a lot of other books that were sort of quote-unquote taboo or whatever. And, uh, you know, why why was this the one that really set everybody off? Why was this like the dark Harry Potter? Mm. And uh, it's quite actually interesting. Um, not a great film necessarily for a, for a Halloween evening with your friends over, but um, not, not, uh, not, a, not a bad dissection of the phenomenon of social and cultural horror. Mm. So that I, I thought was cool. Uh, a couple of a couple other grindhousey things here, both of them from Severin. The first one is a giallo film uh, presented by Dario Argento, directed by Sergio Stivaletti. It is called The Wax Mask. And, uh, it, you know, for, for a straight-up 1997 giallo, 20, 20 years past now, but sort of 20 years beyond the prime of giallo, uh, it's not bad. It, uh, it's not my kind of thing, but... You know, it does. It's it, it sort of what I like are the special features. It's got a lot of special features that set the context for Giallo that really um, establish where all of these things fall in the legacy line and in the uh, the timeline of how these things evolve. Very, very interesting. The director and um, his special effects team do the uh, uh, do the uh, audio commentary. And uh, the uh, the featurettes are all very, very interesting. Uh, the Chamber of Horrors, particularly, is a good one. And then Beyond Fulci is another really, really good one. Um, yeah, so, so The Wax Mask is, a, is a, a, a decent Jello film, but it also has a lot of extras that really contextualize everything in a great way. Uh, and then we also have kind of a pseudo-Jello film from Severin, which is uh, first time on Blu-ray, Killer Crocodile. Killer Crocodile is from the late 80s, 1989 specifically. Not very good, but it clearly is inspired by Jaws and Piranha and you know all the stuff that those, those films spawned. And it's very gory, uh, sometimes cheesy, sometimes a little bit too real, to be honest. And uh, they have an interview with a makeup effects artist on here who is very, very good and very detailed. Um, and that's actually very, very interesting. The uh, the idea is probably you know for the politically incorrect crowd you'll probably enjoy this. This is it's it's basically about a, a crocodile that uh, uh, that winds up eating a lot of um, base environmentalists who are out to sort yeah. of save the crocodiles. Yeah. That's what it is, you know. Well, uh, good intentions always always go <laughs> punished in these kinds of movies. But uh, it's really a nice transfer for a movie that's um, that could have very well looked like garbage, considering it's over twenty five years old, thirty years old. Um, it's they did really they went to the negative. They did a nice two K transfer. It's not bad. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Want me to knock off a few? Yeah. Of these? Let's hit a few. Uh, let's see. Let's start with Satanic Panic, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is just a fantastic name uh, for a not particularly uh, good, but not particularly terrible movie. It lives right there in the zone. Pizza yeah. delivery girl. Yeah. 
uh, in need of money. Her last delivery of the night, Halloween night, is to this uh, sorority of, of, of Satanists. Oh, uh, yeah. And they need to sacrifice a virgin. And wouldn't you know it? She's a virgin. Yeah. Uh, you know what? She's not so much worried about getting sacrificed. She wants, she wants her tip. <laughs> that's oh, that's what, so funny. That's what she wants. That's too funny. <laughs> funny. Uh, uh, Jerry O'Connell, Rebecca Romaine. Uh, pop up in this movie, yeah, uh, perfectly nice, nice little Halloween middle. And it's funny <laughs> that these movies can still get made. It, I'm glad some of them are tongue in cheek. Yes, they know. Yeah. Uh, they yeah. know. As opposed to these Annabelle movies, uh, Annabelle comes home. Yeah, you know, I had I tapped out on these fairly early. I tapped. Yeah, The Conjuring, good movie. Yeah, the Conjuring, good movie. Yeah, uh, yeah Annabelle everything, is part everything of the else, Conjuring so universe. Every, everything else is. You have these demonologist family, yeah. and they're running around. They got you got this evil doll. They take the doll, they stick it in their in their in their uh, um, their haunted artifacts room. Here's the problem, folks. You, you don't want to have a haunted artifacts room. <laughs> At your house, you probably you probably gonna want probably gonna want to keep those. I don't know. Go rent a storage area someplace <laughs> and put the haunted artifacts in that. Don't keep them at your house, man. Uh, deleted scenes and featurette. Uh, these movies are fun for people who like those movies. Two evil eyes. I remember this. Nineteen ninety. This was the thing in nineteen ninety. So you had you have these two uh, horror tales based on short stories by Edgar Allan Poe. And directed by these two famous directors. You got uh, George A. Ramiro, uh, who uh, left us a year or so ago, I yeah. think, and Dario Argento uh, directing these two uh, movies. And this, and this uh, thing is kind of fun. Uh, with a decent cast, this thing, you have Adrian Barbeau, who, you know, you can't go wrong with Adrian Barbeau, particularly, True. Yeah, particularly in 1990. <laughs> uh, 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 but you got Harvey Keitel in this thing, too. E.G. Marshall shows up. I mean, a real serious, Sally Kirkland, John Amos, a real serious cast of. Um, of, uh, of, of actors in these two Edgar Allan Poe sort of adaptations uh, done by these two very, very good directors. So Two Evil Eyes, 1990 film. Um, I, not a lot on this, by way. It would have been lovely if they would have had a, a, a commentary or something like that on these tracks. Sort of, because nothing really ties together George A. Romero, George Romero, right. and, and Dario Argento. I mean, you know, Giallo and what George were doing, totally different things. Yeah, these, these, completely. These genres had nothing whatsoever to do with one another. Uh, the Malevolence films, um, uh, all three of them here, Mal Malevolence, uh, 2004, uh, Malevolence 2, Bereavement, the director's cut, and Malevolence 3, Killer. So um, uh, this director made these movies, um, uh, and they're actually pretty damn good. They live in the exact same zone as the Halloween films. And had they come out 25 or 30 years ago, they would probably be fairly, uh, yep. you know, uh, they'd, they'd probably be fairly notable films. You know, things happen when they sort of, uh, Stevan Mena is his name. It, they're about a little boy named Martin Bristol. He gets kidnapped when he's six years old. He completely and totally disappears. Uh, we know that he uh, was in the hands of this madman serial killer who forced him to watch all kinds of absolutely yeah. sadistic things. And, and each one of the films are about uh, what happens when Martin comes back. Uh, Malevolence 3, we end up right back at the beginning again and we see what happens. These are pretty good movies uh, that people rather enjoy the Malevolence films. Uh, Candy Corn. Ah. Uh. Uh, I've, it, I've actually seen this. This is actually a fun film. I kind of enjoy this. This is one of those sort of classic films. You have these bullies, uh, Halloween. They have this uh, hazing thing that they do. Uh, this is one particular guy, this outcasty kind of guy. His name's Jacob or something like that. Things go a little too far. Jacob comes back and gets his revenge. This is one of those. Okay. And yet you can't. You really cannot go wrong with one of those. It's a, it's a perfectly sweet little film. Tony Todd. I love Tony Todd. If you want to, and I, let me recommend. Let me recommend, speaking of Ramiro and Tony Todd, 1990 also, I think, a remake of Night of the Living Dead. 
Uh, I forget who directed it. George still produced it. John Russo was one of the producers of it, too. Tony Todd. Yeah, I can't remember. Brother. I can't remember who I remember, the director yeah. was. And that was an excellent remake. Yeah. Of Night of the Living Dead, I, I I I vaguely remember that, and I and I do think uh, I do remember. Yeah, yeah. Tony Todd, uh, um, the house, uh, the the haunting of Hill House. I re- this was a good movie. I mean, uh, the adaptation of Stephen King, of course. Yeah. Uh, Henry Thomas, uh, excellent, excellent movie. Uh, this family, this this haunted house, and we sort of work our way back through what drove them out of that house in the first place. Special features includes uh, this is the director's cut, and it has a commentary all the way through from Mike Flanagan. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this film. If you're into that whole genre of films, and lastly for me over here, the big ass Omen box set. Yeah, uh, the Omen collection deluxe edition, including that the 2006-2007 remake of the Omen, but more importantly, uh, the Omen, Damien. Omen 2 and Final Conflict. Those uh, Omen and the Waking for four. That we didn't. They didn't really need to do that one either. Uh, and then the Omen again. But nevertheless, the Sam Neill films were absolutely outstanding. These lived right in the zone up yeah. there with, uh, oh, I suppose, I suppose that The Omen and The Exorcist at that particular time, they're a few years apart, The Exorcist yeah. came first. I would say that those would be the two big horror films uh, of, of that period that really gave me nightmares. That's a kid. I'm a kid yeah. in the early 70s. Yeah. And these films freaked me out. Sam Neill, for years, I thought was the Antichrist. <laughs> I, I did like, too. I'm, I'm like, I I did too. I'm like, he looks he, like the Antichrist. Look he, at his eyes. He was. It was that. Well, that put him over the top, man. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that yeah that and, put and, him and on our stu- radar. It stuck to him for quite a while. Um, all right, that's my that's my Halloween Good collection deal. over here. Good deal. All right, uh, a few other things here. Going to get into our next giveaway. Remind you of the first one as well. Also, we got an interview that we're going to uh, have at the end of the show. Uh, very interesting interview, pushing a new book, not Halloween related, but it is out. And uh, it's called Creativity and Copyright, co-written by one of my old professors who has done many great commentaries as well for on many of the original Criterion uh, Laserdiscs. And some of them have been resurrected lately for their, uh, their Blu-ray releases. Howard Suber uh, and John Geiger did a book, uh, Creativity and Copyright. And uh, it's it's terrific. It's really terrific. It's all about uh, you know uh, basically giving a legal foundation for writers to understand copyright uh, before they even start writing. It's, it's and what to do while you're writing and what to do if you ever bump into any of those copyright issues that yeah. are so good. It's a, it's an essential volume for writers. So it's fantastic. So also you know what? It's not all about horror, folks. It's not all about horror. And thank you, Hallmark Channel, because <laughs> really Hallmark Channel understands that sometimes October. Is about romance. Yeah. Pretty much everything on Hallmark is about <laughs> romance, but that's why we've got October Kiss. <laughs> How funny is this? That is just so. I'm showing Tim the cover of the DVD, which has uh, Ashley Williams and Sam Jager on it. Yeah. I don't know who they are, no. but apparently, if you watch Hallmark and other things, you do. And they're just sitting there, and they're they're giving you this smile, and while they carve a pumpkin, and. Uh, it looks all very romantic. October Kiss, a Hallmark Channel original movie. Um, look, you know, uh, it, it, seriously, it's just, it's another one of those, all these Hallmark romances are exactly the same, whether it's October Kiss or Christmas Kiss or Spring Kiss or Thanksgiving Kiss, whatever it is. Yeah. They're all absolutely the same. It, they're all just about people who need love and they come, you know, maybe there's a broken family and in this case, you know, there are some kids that you can always that you, you can use and exploit for those scenes where somebody's trying to win over somebody else's kids. Those are always fun scenes to do. It's just, it's n- another one of those movies. And you know what? 
if you really are just weak need and you don't want to watch a horror movie on yeah. uh, on thanks on uh, Halloween night, go for that one. There's still a pumpkin in it. Yeah, there's a pumpkin. Yeah. So crawl, which we mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, with the first giveaway. Uh, remember, sent crawl in the in the uh, the subject line, name and address in the body of the email, godsdigigods.com. So crawl is actually not a terrible movie. We talked about you know the uh, the yeah no not a terrible movie. movie, good movie. Crawl actually really is very very effective. Uh, it's super effective. This is after a hurricane has gone through Florida, and uh, you you, you it, it's a great setup. So the hurricane's gone through Florida, and uh, this woman basically finds herself. Um, Threatened with a, uh, a, a a crocodile in yeah. the house or yeah. an alligator in Florida sense it's a gator, so she's you know the hurricane has created a really great kind of claustrophobic um, monster situation which is like real horror I, and it's very effective and it's very nicely done. Um, I thought it's pretty well acted too, and uh, it did reasonably well at the box office, I think too. It's got a motion comic um, uh, of the alternate opening, which is whatever. Uh, some deleted and extended scenes and a bunch of other featurettes, but nonetheless, uh, Sam Raimi got behind this as a producer, and uh, with good reason. It's quite well done. So, get in on that giveaway. Also, reasonably well done is Night Hunter. Uh, Night Hunter is kind of a second-tier serial killer movie in the vein of Seven. It's not that extreme or Kiss the Girls. It's kind of like that. It's somewhere between Seven and Kiss the Girls. It would have probably been a straight-to-video movie if they had not somehow put together an amazing cast. This is what a studio can do. This is Paramount. We've got a giveaway for this as well. And if you want, we're giving away uh, three copies of Night Hunter, three Blu-rays, and if you want to get on this one, send us the email. Make sure it gets to us by the 25th. Uh, name and address in the body of the email. And in the subject line, put Superman. Here's why. <laughs> it stars Henry Cavill. Ah. He's trying to make you forget that he's Superman. Yeah. You know, Henry was Ca- Superman. Or was Superman. Yeah. So Henry Cavill faces a real uphill battle. And this is what this is what I've decided he's doing now. Because remember, there was that whole mustache thing. Yeah, remember, because yeah, he was in yeah, Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible and, yeah, and, yeah. So Henry Cavill has basically decided there's no way to separate himself from Superman other than hair. It's <laughs> pretty much it. Facial hair. Facial hair. So here... It's reasonably effective. It takes you about 15 minutes before you realize this is Henry Cavill because mm. he's got a long mop of curly hair and a full beard. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you're watching this and you're going, that guy is kind of, that buff guy looks kind of, that's Superman. It dawns on you about 10 minutes in. Henry, so, if you really want to separate yourself from Superman, forget about the hair. Get fat. <laughs> Just start with some Twinkies. Year from now, nobody will ever, ever oh, associate you with Superman again. There, Hunk, that's Hunk a Spun. good point. That's how you do it. That's a good point. Anyway, uh, yeah. So Henry Cavill, uh, Ben Kingsley's in this. Amazingly, so Stanley Tucci, yeah. sort of amazing. Uh, they all signed on, and a studio can throw paychecks around, and they can they can doll up a movie that otherwise should go straight to video and be a grindstone release. Yeah, I mean, did, did that movie? I do not remember that movie as a theatrical here. Uh, the it was theatrical. theatrical here, it did, I covered it, it on a film week. You, you covered it on yeah, film week. sure I missed did. it completely. It's you know what, and it is. Um, my issues with it are only that it 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 goes into a it it takes a few liberties just for the it it it. it 
it has some plot twists just for the sake of having plot twists. Nah. And they're twists that I've seen before. Yeah. And I kind of got in front of them, and I'm a little cynical about it. I'm like, okay, so now I'm thinking like the writer. I know what you're doing. I see you, I see you, you know, turning the dials. Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. There's a very Wizard of Oz kind of manipulation going on. Nonetheless, it is a genre. And as the Tarantino documentary reminded me, as Tarantino uh, says when he has his, his genre festival in Austin, mm. don't think you're smarter than the movie. These are awesome movies. And so there is something to be said for genre where you pick a template and you just sort of hang a new subtext on an established template. Yeah. So I will, in, in honoring Quentin, I will say, as a genre film, it certainly does have some panache to it. Mm. So I'm not going to rip on it. And we're giving three of them away. Night Hunter. Uh, with Henry Cavill, Ben Kingsley, and Stanley Tucci, also uh, Alexandra Daddario, who's uh, who's Alexandria always... pops up in a lot of seasons. She was in that middle uh, in uh, malevolence stuff. film. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. She's in a, she's in a lot of them. Uh, and then uh, let's see here. Before I turn it back over to you, want to mention our one and only Criterion release for uh, Halloween, and it's a really good one. Um, people call it Hoxon. It's actually probably pronounced uh, Hoxon. Nonetheless, it is H-A-X-A-N. It's been out before on DVD from Criterion. It is now out finally on Blu-ray. It is an amazing, amazing Swedish uh, 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 silent film from 1922 that is absolutely uh, chilling. It is sort of one of the original seminal horror films. Um, we can talk about Nosferatu from Germany. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there are a number of uh, Der Gollum there are uh, tons of them, but the, you know, Hoxon, Hexon, you know, however you pronounce it. Yeah. I don't know. The it, cinematography it, in that is it, absolutely striking. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, so effectively, this is a, um, it's, it, it's a, it's a witchcraft silent. There's something about it being a silent film that makes the whole witchcraft and occultism of it even creepier than it otherwise would be. Um, but anyway, it is, a, it, it, it's essentially a, a rooted in, uh, in medievalism and an actual, um, actual uh, uh, witchcraft superstitions from the era. This is all real stuff, not made up for the movie necessarily. And uh, where, you know, the illnesses were oftentimes ascribed to possession and, you know, not understanding the natural world or the scientific world the way that we do today, occultism suddenly becomes your de facto substitute for science and, yeah. and medicine. Yeah. And uh, so the, uh, you know, it, it, this gets pretty deep. I mean, satanic Sabbath and uh, possession and all kinds of other really, really just uh, horrifying stuff shows up in here. And it is beautifully made, beautifully shot. Um, I wouldn't call it necessarily a narrative film. It's, it's, a, it's a series of vignettes. But it is uh, it is absolutely superb, and there is music from the 1922 Danish premiere, arranged by uh, Gillian Anderson and performed by the Czech Film Orchestra. Uh, originally recorded in 2001, really great, perfect score. Uh, it's it's great that they were able to sort of redo that. Um, there's also the original 2001 commentary with Casper Tibjerg. Uh, which along with a 76 minute version of the film, which is. Uh, which is truncated by about, you know, 20-some minutes. Um, and uh, a lot of other interesting stuff in here, you know, a lot of interesting stuff. So really one of the most fascinating um, horror antecedents that's ever been put to film. It's worth checking out. It's worth having in your library. And it is uh, Hoxon, Hexon, however you want to pronounce it. Mm. All right. Uh, you know, let me do one more before I turn it back over to you. Okay. Um, 
not really Halloween themed, but anything related to Gigi Allen is so horrifying to me that I just figure, why the hell not? Uh, from MVD, we've got a uh, documentary on Gigi Allen, and uh, it's called Gigi Allen All in the Family. You know, for those who don't know, Gigi Allen was a, a kind of a punk rocker and uh, a very deeply sick, disturbed guy. Yeah. Really disturbed. Like, this stuff doesn't go on in concerts anymore. There was a moment there in the, in the 80s, late 80s, where there were some concerts that would probably be shut down by law enforcement today. Yeah. What Gigi Allen did, I cannot be in concert what he did with the audience, what he did to the audience, what he did to himself, yeah, cannot be said on this podcast. Uh, I, I would, I would not urge you to necessarily go online and find out. But um, the uh, what this is about, and he he died at age thirty seven from a heroin overdose, yeah. as you might imagine. Yeah. Uh, the uh, anyway, this is a this is this is an examination of his family, which is interesting because it sort of puts a human face on the tragedy and the guy. And, uh, you know, he passed in 1993. And uh, here you specifically look at his mother and his brother, and um, it it's it really tries to sort of put, make sense of who he was and why he was. And it does a reasonably good job of it. Um, it is sometimes, I think, a little bit too superficial. Uh it doesn't dig enough. Uh, I think they're afraid of, you know, hurting people and offending people. They don't. They, they pull their punches a couple of times. Nonetheless, it's the only one out there that's doing hey, this. Look, so. trans, he was a transgressive. Transgressives can be interesting at points, and, and they pop up at, at points in history. Yeah. There are transgressives, however, who are also suffering from mental illness. And that's very much a case here. Yeah, you know, and that's not just a matter of a person making these sort of uh, social choices and things like that. You, you add mental illness in, into that, and you have an entirely different yep. sort of dynamic. Very true. And I'm sorry, he was mentally ill. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Tone Deaf and Blood Paradise. I put these two movies together to talk about very, very quickly because they are basically the same movie. These two movies. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's literally they're the same movie. So, uh, uh, Tone Deaf, 2019 movie, Jason Patrick. Uh, and Amanda Crew in this movie. It's about this one young woman who uh, gets dumped by a boyfriend, fired from her job. She goes out to the country, rents a country house from this widower, Jason Patrick, you know, going to just relax, you know, try to get his thing sure. together. Jason Patrick goes all bananas, tries to kill her. Oh, <laughs> you no, know, he can't because be doing he's, that. Because he's crazy. Uh, uh, and then I have this movie, Blood Paradise, about this young woman, and she goes out to the sweetest countryside, rents this country house out in the country of Sweden. <laughs> And she rents it from this crazy guy who tries to kill her, along with the rest of the town. And I'm like, seriously, this this, this is like the stay exact home. same movie. Stay home. Everybody just stay the hell at home. Stay home. Uh, and stay um, Three from Hell, Rob Zombie movie, uh, a, a continuation of the series that begins with House of a Thousand Corpses. Captain Spaulding, uh, who uh, Sid Haig, who we of course lost two three weeks ago. I can't remember exactly, but not very long ago we lost Sid. Um, uh, who plays Captain Spaulding in the series. Of course, Sid goes back uh, uh, 45, 50 years in film. Sid yeah. is in Citizen, uh, Citizen Coffee. Uh, Sid, is in, Sid, Sid, is, Sid was the quintessential bad guy. Uh, but he really sort of made his bones in these horror movies, including Three from Hell, the 2019 third installment. Uh, the middle one was uh, The Devil's Rejects. Yeah. Uh, with all the same characters, uh, including including his wife and a few others doing all of these sort of transgressive things in society. The big difference here, none of these people are actually mentally ill. They're just, yep. they're just making horror movies. 
The Devil's Revenge. Uh, uh, William Shatner shows up in this film for about 45 <laughs> seconds because William Shatner shows up everywhere. I love that he does that. <gasps> for about 45 seconds. I just love it. Keep on rolling, Bill. Anyway, this is about this archaeologist. Uh, he's, his family has been looking for this artifact on their Kentucky farm for years and years in these caves, right? Yeah. He's in this cave. He, he, he doesn't find a thing. But he does bump up against the room that it's in. Mm. He brings back a sort of evil, occult right. sort of thing. Now him and his family, him and his family have to go back into the cave to destroy this artifact and close the portal to the... Ah, to the portal. You always got, you know, look, you open a portal a hole to hell, you got to close it. My favorite Rob Zombie thing ever, I will still say, is that a really insane sequence in the middle of Beavis and Butthead to America. <laughs> yeah. That crazy bit of animation, and that's all Rob Zombie through and through. It's fantastic. Uh, let's, uh, we got a bunch of Kino that all pertains. Wonderful selection of Kino genre titles here. Uh, all of them from the, uh, the Studio Classics line. First one, The Mindbenders, is really, really fun. Uh, The Mindbenders was, uh, from 1963, and directed by Basil Dearden with an amazing performance by the great Dirk Bogard, who's in this along with a bunch of other people, Mary Yore and John Clement. Uh, but it's a, it, it, this was a real shocker at the time. And Dirk Bogard was known for being able to convey a certain instability on screen. Mm. He did it in, in, in The Servant and a bunch of other movies. He was, he, he was very, very good at suggesting that there was something going on in his head that needed to be fixed. Mm. Uh, he might have had a few screws loose. Just always really, really good about that. Uh, so this is not necessarily a horror film per se, but it is a psychological thriller that verges on psychological horror and uh, has a has a, a great Cold War vibe to it as well. Got a guy who, um, who's been accused of being a communist spy, uh, winds up committing suicide, and then his friend, played by Dirk Bogard, thinks that he um, may have been subject to some kind of mind control experimentation, and that launches this, uh, you know, this this exploration and this really, really bizarre um, movie that combines all. It's like one of the first movies to to sort of go into the um, my, the the the, uh, the the chemical and mm. and. Uh, I mean, it's a little like uh, like altered states. A lot of yeah. the stuff that was in altered states. A yeah. lot of that kind of stuff. Combine that with its Cold War sensibility. Really good kind of. It's it's just creepy. It's creepy and airy. It's very nicely done. Amazing cinematography by Dennis Koop. Uh, 1963, uh, The Mindbenders. Love it. It's really good. Uh, Sudden Terror by John Howe. From 1970, definitely a 1970 movie. Uh, it's it's just totally right in the pocket of that kind of uh, that kind of psychological horror. Uh, this is about a kid, and there are always these creepy kids. A really <laughs> creepy kid actor. It's hard to believe this child exists in real life. Um, who witnesses a an, a political assassination of an African leader, and because this kid has been the boy who cried wolf, nobody believes him. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's it, it, it then it just goes completely off the off the rails. It's de- it's definitely in the uh, in the the shadow of Rosemary's Baby a little bit. Yeah, and, Susan uh, George, that Susan blonde, Ger- and the, definitely yeah. kind of leaning into the Omen a little bit. And uh, there's a lot of really really good chills in this thing. It's pretty fun, and it was executive produced by Erwin Allen. Yeah. Uh, and soon the darkness, directed by Robert Fwest. Uh, this is from 1970 as well. 
has a great commentary on it with uh, Robert Fuest, along with his uh, co-writer and co-producer Brian Clemens, and uh, their conversation with journalist Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan Sothcott. Uh, this is a great transfer. They did a really good job digging up the uh, the elements and doing a new 4K transfer and transferring that a little bit uh, down res to uh, Blu-ray. But it looks beautiful. Fuest is kind of a, you know, he's a, he's a little bit, he's somewhat known uh, from the time and uh, has some skills. This is uh, this is one of those, a little bit like the things that you just talked about for a second. Um going into the countryside where you just ought not go. It's a couple of British nurses. They're in the French countryside, and uh, as in the Wicker Man and anything else yeah, where yeah, people yeah. go into the into countrysides where they just should not. Um, you, you, there's a, there, there winds up being a... Um, an, there are incidents that cannot be explained. I don't want to give anything away. They, they discover something, and it turns out that things are... Not quite as they appear, and it gets very menacing and scary, and everything kind of just goes completely insane by the end, and hence, and soon the darkness. Yeah, Terry Nation, Terry Nation was one of the writers on that. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, they did. They did a sequel to that. Uh, well, not a sequel, a remake, and uh, know, maybe ten years ago, with Amber Heard uh, and Mark Urban and all the guy Carl Urban and all the guys. Actually, a pretty good sequel too. And yeah, it's good stuff. Good stuff. Well, in 1980, uh, John Huston directed a thing called Phobia believe it or not, which is another great psychological thriller with no less than Paul Michael Glazier in it. Also has John Colicus and a lot of other great figures from the, from the period. Um, the, uh, the story was co-written by Ron Shusett, mm-hmm. who, of course, co-wrote Alien. And uh, so this is really a, a really interesting 1980, very atypical, archetypal 1980 movie. Jonathan Kaplan was, a, was an executive producer. It's really interesting to see all the people who are involved in this. And, uh, you know, uh, Paul Michael Glazer is trying to sort of exploit Starsky but move beyond Starsky a little bit and uh, does, a, uh, does a good job of it. He's, uh, he's basically a, um, he's a guy who treats people who suffer from, um, from various phobias, hence the title of the movie. And uh, eventually all of his patients start getting killed, and now... It gets very Agatha Christie-like, right? Now you've got to got to try to figure it out and put it all together. And John Huston does this the way that he does everything else, with enormous professionalism, and it's very polished, and it's really cool, and uh, you got to check it out. I yeah. would really recommend this. Phobia, an, yeah. un, an unheralded gem from 1980. Uh, the last three here, uh, two of them are... I'm going to move to this one. Um, R- Roberto Benigni made a movie called The Monster, which he really should not have. This was right before he did. Uh, he came. He, he basically before he legitimized himself with uh, his Oscar win. And uh, the monster from 1994 is 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 an attempt to make a serial killer comedy. And it's kind of funny in moments. There are times where it's uh, it, it it where it is really funny, and there are other times where you just feel like, oh, maybe you shouldn't have gone there. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, it was Some successful. people would say that about Life is Beautiful, too. But, uh, you know, it's true. Yeah, Mel, yeah. Mel Brooks being one of them. Yeah. Nonetheless, and he's in it with his wife, Nicoletta Braski, uh, and Michel Blanc, the great French screenwriter and actor. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, it's it's Benini doing, you know, doing his thing. Yeah. Uh, and the last two here from Kino, Dan Curtis's Trilogy of Terror 2 with uh, Lizette Anthony, one of the original great Scream Queens. And uh, this is 1996. 
has an audio commentary by a film historian and an interview with Lizette Anthony. Nothing particularly great here. Dan Curtis, of course, who, who originally did uh, Dark, Dark Shadows, Shadows and, yeah. and a few TV movies like uh, Dracula starring uh, Jack Palance and, and, a, and a very weird Frankenstein. Yeah, that um, Dracula was good with Jack Palance. That's great. It yeah. really is great. No, Jack Palance kills it in that one. Um, so the, he made Trilogy of Terror, and then uh, afterwards he followed it up with Trilogy of Terror 2, which is perfectly fine. It's you know it's a little bit uh, it's it's anthological and it it it, it, it it's kind of scary I guess, um, but not brilliant. Which is a little surprising. It was co-written by Richard Matheson, who normally does better work than this. But nonetheless, uh, genre fans will probably enjoy it. And then the last one, Zoltan, Hound of of Dracula. Albert Band, one of the all-time great uh, kind of schlockmeisters, yeah. and uh, like from the, you know, in the 1970s, Albert Band kind of took up the baton from Corman and Arkoff and, and did a lot of stuff. And this is one of his better efforts. Uh, this is from 1977, the same year as Star Wars, believe it or not. You'll have a hard time believing that when you watch it. Great audio commentary from Lee Gammon and John Harrison that explains the context of this film and why it matters. And uh, you know what? Zoltan Hound of Dracula is a completely unusual movie for its genre. There's no way to explain it. The only name in this thing is Jose Ferrer. And um, the, the, this is about the, the... So there's a little Cold War angle to it as well. So the Russian army discovers Dracula's tomb, and uh, the, in his tomb it was his uh, human slave, mm. Zoltan. Not quite sure where that came from. Somebody, somebody cooked that up. But uh, the this all gets then into a weird thing about Dracula's lineage and the the devil dogs that were um, that were that were part of this whole lore and it and it and it's really a kind of an elaborate mythology that they built up here and it grows throughout the film and becomes really quite fascinating and scary by the end. Largely thanks to a lot of really great makeup effects work by the legendary Stan Winston. Yeah. So uh, you know all of this, but all this sort of it, it's it's very mythological, very mystical. It's really quite it's it's really quite good and a lot of fun. So uh, Zoltan, Hound of Dracula by Albert Band. Yeah. Albert Albert and Jose were good friends. Oh, were they? Yeah, and uh, you know Charles Band is Albert's yeah. son. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it, it, Charles's first film, 1976, Crash, stars Jose. Oh, so no he got dad to make Jose <laughs> be in his first very bad film, <laughs> Crash. The crap I know. <laughs> That's great. It's good crap to know. All right. Another giveaway right now. We have uh, two copies of the, uh, the, the, the two-pack, Adam's Family and Adam's Family Values, that we reviewed, I think it was last week. Uh, on Blu-ray, it's Blu-ray twofer. You get both of those Adams Family live-action movies uh, on Blu-ray. We're going to be giving away two copies of those. Send the email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com with lurch in the subject line, body and address in the uh, body name and address in the body of the email. Make sure it gets to us by the twenty-fifth. And uh, we have, after that, two more, only two more giveaways this week. But right now, I'm going to talk about a few foreign titles, Asian titles specifically, uh, that we have on Blu-ray. And uh, these are all Halloween-y things. Look, Asian horror is a category all its own, especially if it's Korean or Japanese, but Chinese as well. It's just, it's a unique kind of horror, Thai also. And uh, it's always a great option on Halloween. 
if you uh, if you want to go a little bit artsy, if people don't mind subtitles, there's a lot to be gleaned from these things. The lingering from Welgo, the lingering from Welgo is really, really genuinely terrifying. Uh, this is in Cantonese. It is a Hong Kong horror film, and it's it it, it it it's it's as claustrophobic as any claustrophobic horror film I've ever seen. Uh, the it, it has some similarities, I want to say, with uh, certain Japanese and Korean uh, horror stories, but effectively, it is uh, it's about a guy and his mother who are um, for reason for supernatural reasons have to spend a night in the basement, mm. and uh, this winds up dovetailing into revelations about his childhood and it's really it's it's it, 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 there's just nothing else I can tell you about it. it it's very tense it's very suspenseful and it's extremely well shot and uh, I highly recommend it it is the lingering on Blu-ray from Wellgo really 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 good uh, then we also have not really a ghost movie not really a, a, a Halloween movie per se but Kinda, sorta, and I'm just adding it in here because I like Chen Kaiga and always want to recommend his movies. Legend of the Demon Cat. This is also from Wellgo. And because it's Chen Kaiga, who, of course, directed uh, Farewell, My Concubine and many other fine films, it is a Mandarin language, mainland Chinese film. It takes place in uh, in medieval China, and uh, it's basically the story during the Tang Dynasty. And it's the story of a, a demonic possession in the case of a, a general's wife, and all of all that that does in terms of court intrigue. Um, you know, it's not uh, again not necessarily scary, but definitely supernatural. And because it's got a kind of a possession angle to it, it's worth recommending. Um, the uh, but again, Chen Kaiga has been kind of going in a more genre direction the last few years. Tried his hand at some martial arts stuff. Now this is a little bit uh, kind of in the wushu vein. Mm. Um, it's not his best work, but it's beautifully made. It's really just fantastically well photographed and uh, has a lot of great stuff in it. Uh, from Japan is uh, a film called Brutal by Takashi Hirosa. And uh, it is it absolutely, totally lives up to its name. This is unbelievably brutal. It was made in uh, 2018, but feels more feels like something that would have been done in Japan maybe even in the 80s. Uh, there's, a, there's a serial killer going on, and uh, they, they find out... Um, they, they, there are things that connect his victims, um, as is often the case in serial killer movies, that wind, that winds up being, being the big revelation. It's really, really well done. Not my style because it's really horrific in a way that I don't like have in my head. However, if you like that stuff, the Japanese do not pull punches, and Hirosa is a very, very skilled director. So the film is brutal from Unearthed Films. And then lastly, uh, Who Killed Cock Robin? Mm. Uh, Who Killed Cock Robin comes to us uh, in Mandarin and Taiwanese. It's about two hours long, and uh, it is a psychological thriller from the um, uh, the very, very talented director uh, Chang Wei Hao. Uh, and the idea here is that you have a journalist who is still haunted by an event from many, many years earlier, a, a thing that uh, that sort of has, is, is grinding away in the subconscious. 
and he um, he is looking to redeem his memory of that event by an action in the present. That's as much as I'm going to tell you about it. And uh, it winds up sort of having the opposite effect, which is unraveling, uh, causing a psychological unraveling. I don't want to give you any other details about what happened. You, you just need to see it. It's really, really cool psychological thriller. It has um, it has a noir quality to it, but it's uh, it's definitely a really good one for Halloween because it's just so loaded with mood and 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 darkness and shadows, and the music is great and the sound design is terrific. Who killed Cock Robin? Really good movie. All of those are on Blu-ray. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Uh, I got a few here. I guess we can take a take a look at. Yeah, uh, including Itsy Bitsy. Uh, which is a neat little movie based <laughs> on that poem, you know? Yeah, it, the itsy bitsy spider. Yeah, yeah, which is like a creepy poem to begin with. <laughs> just point that out. I have no idea why we would do, why we would do that. Anyway, this family uh, uh, lives in, in in this mansion, and the mansion uh, has an entity in it that appears to the family as a sort of giant spider. Bruce uh, Bruce Davidson, the wonderful Bruce Davidson, in this, and Denise Crosby played Tasha Yar. Uh, in, That's uh, right. Uh, Generations, I think, with uh, Star Trek. Uh, yeah, well, the, uh, the originally Next Gen, but yeah, last time was in Generations, yeah. yeah. Uh, cool, too. So kind of creepy little film there. The 1988 of The Blob. Uh, Chuck dear. Russell film. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, with with Kevin Dillon as opposed yeah. to Matt. People forget that Kevin Dillon uh, was actually a movie star in terms of leading man in movies. Yeah. But before, uh, before his brother... Uh, um, uh, 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 Matt Dillon uh, in this neat little movie remake of the 1958 film, of course, not not you know not bad, not particularly better in any particular way, but I could I could see probably doing a um, uh, Halloween double feature sure. of the Blob and the Blob. Uh, Frank Darabont, uh, one of the screenwriters of the 1988 The Blob, which I did not know until yeah. I looked up right. I Good friend that. of mine, Art Lafleur, also in that movie. Uh, Art was in a movie uh, of mine. Bill Mosley shows up in the movie. It's funny how those all the um, Horror guys sort of roam around the same movies over and over and over again, uh, and then we have a nineteen the uh, nineteen sixty eight film, The Devil Rides Out, uh, uh, Terrence Fisher film, Christopher Lee, uh, and this uh, basically it's a sort of devil worshiping film. Christopher Lee is this guy who lives out in the country. Uh, he has a, f- a friend who comes to visit, and they and they have um, been appointed godfather for a third friend who has died a son, his young son. This young son has all these friends that come out to the estate uh, to visit with them. And Christopher Lee fairly uh, quickly figures out that this is a satanic cult, all these people. <laughs> Fortunately... Christopher Lee's good at that because yeah. he's played Dracula. He knows that. Many times he knows that stuff. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, he's pretty proficient at black magic himself, and there's yeah. just going to be a, a Donnie Brook with the devil. Yeah. We're going to get the goat of Mindy's and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, in the, in the late 60s, all of those sort of wicker man, Devilly, uh, vampire-y, uh, demon-y sort of movies were, were were quite a thing. This is a pretty good one uh, among them, and, and you know, an, an excellent d- director in Terrence Fisher, of course, um, uh, who's just wonderful with all that kind of stuff. And we're gonna, uh, I got a couple of little ringers here on DVD only, and then I'll wrap out with the uh, some great stuff from Arrow. First one is called Karma. It's hysterical. Uh, the, the best tagline ever. Karma. What goes around? <laughs> it knows we're going to complete it. It, li- it literally. It is. That's yeah, it. Karma. Oh, yeah. horror film called Karma. Yeah, yeah that's where it is. Uh, any, anyway, this is about a guy, about this kid who uh, takes a job uh, basically evicting people who haven't paid their rent. And uh, and somehow that leads to an encounter with a demon, uh, which is which 
should serve you right for evicting people. Uh, demon will come get you. It's silly. It's but it's you know it's got it's got a few scares. Uh, the more interesting one is the drone, which is uh, from uh, Jordan Rubin, who previously directed a film that I absolutely hate, which is Zombievers, which is you know zombie beavers <laughs> assaulting these people in a cabin in the woods. This is the dumbest movie you ever. Gotta Zombievers. Appreciate the title. It's just so silly. Uh, I know Zombievers, and uh, <laughs> the the anyway. This one's called The Drone. It's ba- it's basically child's play, mm. only with a drone instead of Chucky. Yeah. A serial killer has a drone. Yeah. Lightning strike. Mm. The drone winds up basically being the 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 electronic how thing. Just, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's the soul of the serial uh, oh, the serial okay. killer or whatever. And then there's a couple who 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 now they now they own the drone and but the drone has a mind of its own and starts taking over the, their lives and everything in their house. Whatever, is it scary? No. Is it silly? Yes. Yeah. Somebody will like it. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Uh, all right. Arrow has a ton of great stuff this week. Ton of great stuff. Arrow, of course, uh, has also Arrow Academy, which is the more legit stuff. And uh, Arrow Academy, I want to start off with um, a really, really good movie that is kind of more for sophisticated tastes on Halloween. If you don't want to go straight up scary, go with Man of a Thousand Faces, which is the biopic about Lon Chaney starring James Cagney. One great actor portraying another great actor. And, of course, Lon Chaney played a lot of extraordinary parts in in horror films, helped legitimize uh, horror very, very early on. Uh, beginning with silent stuff like uh, Phantom of the Opera and, and and lots of other great stuff. And Cheney's life is really, really interesting and very, very sad, and it's worth checking out. You know, also he was in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, really one of the great legendary figures of the silent era. James Cagney, one of the great screen actors of all time. And uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful movie. Man of a Thousand Faces, well worth uh, having in any film library. This was made in 1943, and uh, it's a good, sophisticated Halloween film. Now, from Arrow Straight, we get stuff like uh, Billy Sinise's The Dead Center, starring Shane Carruth, who created Upstream Color and, and Primer and a lot of other things. Uh, and uh, Shane Carruth, of course, really kind of a, a, a significant figure in a certain art house style. And uh, here, Shane Carruth plays this uh, psychiatrist that you don't want treating you or anybody near you. And... Um, uh, who is who is in this case administering to a patient that you don't want anywhere near any 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 doctor? It's a really unusual relationship between the two, and uh, from there it it just goes completely haywire. And uh, there's there are some possible supernatural things that are going on. So it winds up being a cat and mouse between doctor and patient that has other ramifications. It's it's scary but intellectual. The dead center is the film. We also have Crimson Peak, uh, a uh, Guillermo del Toro movie that uh, oftentimes uh, gets a little bit overlooked. Just It's a fairly recent... I don't know. Why didn't nobody pay any more attention wow. to Crimson Peak? Yeah. I mean, it's Guillermo del Toro, but yeah. it just kind of came and went, yeah. right? Well, anyway, uh, so Guillermo del Toro uh, basically made this gothic romance with horrific edges to it called Crimson Peak, and uh, it's... It's a it's a worthwhile film. Comes with loads and loads of extras here. It's a beautifully made film, as you would expect always with Del Toro, and uh, it's got all kinds of featurettes and interviews and uh, all kinds of like like, like uh, yeah. It's just I mean it's tons. It's a video essay by uh, Kat Ellinger, who often does a lot of commentaries on these things, deleted scenes. It's uh, it's solid. And it's Del Toro. What do you want? 
you cannot go wrong with a movie that is called Killer Nun. You just can't. That's a that's, that's one of those titles that just begs to be uh, begs to be seen. Uh, Killer Nun was made in 1978 by director Giulio Baruti, which makes you think, okay, we're into giallo territory. Don't necessarily stereotype anything by uh, the name of an Italian director. Uh, it, it kind of is, but um, it's, it's more than that. Uh, this also has a really a very interesting uh, video essay by Kat Ellinger as well that deals with the nunsploitation genre, which really is a subgenre of exploitation, nunsploitation. It's an actual thing. Uh, anyway, Killer Nun stars Anita Ekberg, who is always wonderful. Anita Ekberg, of course, from La Dolce Vita in a very, very different performance. And um, look, it's a it's about a killer nun. What do you what do you want? It's uh, with Sister Gertrude, who's got all kinds of issues and uh, completely loses her mind. And then uh, everything goes south. And that's it. That's all there really is to it. Um, allegedly, this was based on real events. I think it's probably based on a nun who had psychological problems and they, invent, <laughs> they invented everything else but um again loaded with extras a lot of very interesting stuff on here uh including a commentary by adrian j smith and david flint who are experts on italian genre cinema and they'll give you all the nuances on this it's really cool and then we have ringu and the ringu collection so this is the original japanese movie that inspired the ring which is horrific i love the ring but uh, I I think Ringu really nails it. I mean, it is it is just uh, one. It, it sort of originated the J horror movement. It really mm -hmm. did. Uh, 1998. It just changed everything. Hideo Nakata uh, is the director, and Ringu by itself, great movie, fantastic movie, lots of great extras on it. Uh, interviews with the filmmakers. Look back at the Ringu series and what it meant uh, and how it changed everything. It's all very, very salient. David Collat, uh, whom I've worked with for, for years, wonderful, wonderful film historian, does the audio commentary. It is absolutely superb. And the transfer, 4K restoration from the original negative, tremendous, overseen by the cinematographer. Beautiful. If you want, you can also get the whole deal. Uh, Ringu 2, Ringu 0 as well, all of them in a boxed set in the Ringu collection. And um, I, I, I think it's a solid trilogy. I really do. Uh, it's very, very interesting because then it goes back to Ringu 0, which is the origin story, right? It mm -hmm. goes back in time. And uh, it's, it's absolutely, it, it really is. A, it's, there's nothing exploitative or pushing the, the story to where it doesn't need to be. It's really, it's, it's quite good all the way through. It's fantastic. So uh, the Ringu collection is also there in a box set. And then lastly, this is the one I want to talk about for a moment. We have the Arrow release, the special edition with booklet of John Landis' American Werewolf in London. Tim, yeah, yeah. Tim, did this? Was this? Do you? How do you? When, do you remember where you were when you saw this? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and Rich still in St. Louis. Uh huh. Uh, I know the exact theater where we went to went to uh, see it. Uh, uh, I remember the first time I saw the trailer for that. I remember the movie that I was watching that that was the trailer on, and yeah. they did the thing with the wolf. With the I know. And we were amazed. Yeah, you know, the practical effects. It was just incredible. fantastic. And of course, what's his name? Naughton. Yeah. David Naughton. Uh, he was the uh, David you know, Naughton. Naughton. He was mm. the he was the Dr Pepper guy. That's right. At the time. So That's I'm watching right. this guy being the Dr. Pepper guy. He's singing right. the band, hey, the Dr. Pepper, Dr. Whatever. I remember was. that. <laughs> you know, next thing you know. <laughs> I'm a pepper. You're a pepper. pepper that whole that thing. Of, yeah. He's the guy in this, and he's turned into a werewolf. And plus, people don't give Griffin Dunn I know. enough credit. I'm sorry. True. He is hysterical yep. in that movie. He's his friend who gets ripped up yep. and comes back and haunts yeah. him. And he's just hysterical in that movie. 
It is, uh, you know, it's it's it really is John Landis at his best because it's it's horror, it's comedy, yeah. it's everything in between. Yeah, yeah. And it is, uh, it really is a, it's an extraordinary movie. It it just doesn't get enough credit. I think people like to rip on Landis a little bit more than uh, is warranted because he really is when he's on his game, he's on his game. Uh, this is a beautiful transfer supervised by Landis himself from the original negative. Uh, the it was completely restored and revisited last year. Uh, or within the last year, and uh, the extras are sensational. New audio commentary uh, with Paul Davis, who is a film scholar of these kinds of movies. Uh, another audio commentary with David Naughton and Griffin Dunn, mm-hmm. which is great That'll for be, all the yeah. reasons for all the reasons yeah. that Tim outlined. Uh, there is a uh, a brand new feature length documentary called Mark of the Beast: The Legacy of the Universal Werewolf, which takes you through the entire history of werewolves in in uh, Universal Pictures cinema, yeah. and it's wonderful and it's fascinating and it's just so enjoyable. I, I, it's it's worth the purchase of this thing all by itself. Um, there's a great uh, archival interview with John Landis all about the film. There's a uh, a, a thing with uh, Rick Baker where they're talking about the makeup. Um, there's archival and historical footage from Rick Baker's workshop, uh, outtakes, storyboards, uh, there's even, you know, a fold-out poster, and then this, this booklet, the whole thing. It's just a great, great piece of history. American Werewolf in London, John Landis's, uh, seminal... 1981 was it? Yeah. I think it was 81. 81. 81. Yeah. Seminal 1981 film. Well before CGI, when everything was practical. It was, it was By the time they did the sequels, American Werewolf in Paris, yeah. or whatever, yeah. they did all yeah. the CGI werewolves. Yeah. But this, yeah. this, and then the Howling, those yeah. were the two that changed the game. Yep, yep. Gregory they really did. And the, yeah, fantastic. They did. So American Werewolf in London. There is your your final film this week, and it's a real A-lister for the uh, for Halloween. With that, we are done. Have a fantastic Halloween, and now we're going to take the show out with an interview um, with the uh, the authors of uh, Creativity and Copyright. Um, this is this is an amazing book, and uh, you really have to check it out. Creativity and Copyright. Written by John Geiger and Howard Suber. Howard Suber was uh, one of my professors in school at UCLA Film School. He's one of the. He was a dean of the school at one point, and it is. Uh, it's it's a it's a real walkthrough in a in a very very uh, smart way of all the things that writers need to know in order to not be completely terrified of copyright law. And it doesn't get into and and, and we'll talk about this in the interview. But it doesn't get into all of the nuances of statute and legalese and all of this. It's very, very digestible. It's evergreen. And uh, I would recommend anybody who's writing a novel, a short story, a screenplay, whether you're writing with a partner or somebody else, whether you're adapting something or something else, whether you think you have the rights, whether you know you have the rights, it doesn't matter. Everybody should have this. Everybody should read it. It will really, really arm you with knowledge that you need to be able to, to write freely and to know what to do with what you write. So, uh, Creativity and Copyright, Legal Essentials for Screenwriters and Creative Artists. The, uh, the uh, authors are John L. Geiger and Howard Suber, and here is my interview with them. Uh, it is my enormous privilege to be speaking today with uh, John Geiger and Howard Suber on their book, Creativity and Copyright, Legal Essentials for Screenwriters and Creative Artists, an amazing book that I recommend to any writer, screenwriter, novelist, any writer at all. Um, it, this is a thrill to me. Howard Suber was, uh, was one of my very best professors in film school, and John Geiger 
an attorney and a screenwriter. Uh, John, let's just start for a second. You you graduated with an MFA in screenwriting at UCLA, so with a legal background and a screenwriting background, you are uniquely suited to uh, address this subject. Exactly, Wade. I, I, uh, I, I've worn two hats and continue to wear two hats in this area. I've been in the courtroom. I've been in the pitch room. Uh, I've, I've seen it from both sides. And Howard, you you have uh, done very well as a uh, as a, uh, a witness in many of these kinds of cases. I know a lot of people don't realize that that's sort of a uh, a thing that you have done over the years. So you have witnessed this up front and personal, very very close. What can happen when you don't do this correctly? Yeah, I think my first case was The Exorcist, so I've I've been at this a while. Wow. Well, let's let's get right into it. Uh, the thing that I let's how did this book actually start to come about? It was like a series of conversations between the two of you, if I understand correctly. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah my my my. I, I have to say when we when we look at the the history of this, because origin stories are always so fascinating. Uh, uh, to uh, to quote Charles Bukowski in Post Office, it began as a mistake. We uh, we thought it would be a very easy book to write, and we would trade a few emails and hit print. And uh, it was a topic we were both very fascinated in, and it. Uh, I'd like to think of it as an overnight success, but the night was twelve years long. <laughs> Great. Yes. Well, everything always takes longer than you expect, but this was ridiculous. Uh, but we finally <laughs> yeah. we finally got it. Uh, so, so there were but, but, there was a lot of material. Very, yeah. Yeah. To answer your question very directly, Wade, it's uh, it, it's a topic that we both thought was not addressed well uh, by the tsunami of guidebooks that were already out there. Um, uh, the legal ones tended to be inaccessible and the creative ones tended to be incomplete. And uh, our goal was to uh, reduce the guidebook to something that was both legally comprehensible, but uh, literally accessible. Yeah. Well, what I what I love about it, and I'd love it if you could both kind of address this a little bit. You know, the thing you always think about, and, and I, I've certainly gotten more than uh, my share of, uh, of film business business books on the shelf, and they're almost all obsolete because they all cite court cases and precedent, and uh, and and statutes, and almost none of it is, is unchanged today. It's all very very detailed legalese. And what's great about this book is that this is evergreen this is about best practices this is about the big picture the the sort of uh the 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 things that you that every writer needs to be aware of no matter what the law is no matter what the country might even be for that matter um it just it's a it's a way of approaching the work that is um that that is that puts you in the right frame of mind and that's what i like about it is that it, it it's something a writer should read before they write not after they've written yeah, well, this is aimed at, at mostly screenwriters, but anybody who creates material. Uh, and and there are certain basic principles, which uh, in in my lengthy experience teaching uh, would be filmmakers, uh, they generally have a lot of misconceptions about. And in fact, this book. One of the reasons it took us so long was um, that we we kept bringing up more and more questions that 
we know our students have asked frequently, and then we had to winnow it down to uh, um, a brief book, which was our goal. But well, I'd like I, to think that it, it, yeah, I'd like to think that in its brevity, it still is very comprehensive. As, as you note, Wade, we 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 don't tell war stories per se, though there is a wonderful section where Howard does let you behind the curtain and tells about some of his expert witnessing adventures. Can, yes, <laughs> Chapter Seven: Confessions of an Expert Witness, which is which is great. But by and large, we avoid the celebrity name dropping and instead try to address the rules. There are fundamental rules that are very, very straightforward. The lines are very bright. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about them. So we thought it would be important to really have a, a, a guidebook that allowed a filmmaker in plain language to, to see where the bright lines are. I, I love the title of the first chapter, which sort of sets the, the pace for the thing, Free for the Taking, What You Can Steal from Others and What Others Can Steal from You, uh, which is, is really important and does apply globally. Uh, clearance uh, on uh, Chapter 2, collaboration, I think is really important. Chapter 3, you know, people often think, oh, I'm going to write a script with a, with a buddy of mine, not realizing that when you have to share credit, uh, when you share a work, that there are ramifications to that. Uh, and then, you know, selling, copyright infringement, the legal team, confidentiality, and uh, creativity and copyright. It's, it's, a, it's a superb book. I, I really, really like um, the, uh, the part on, on copyright infringement here where uh, you go into the, the elements that are sort of evaluated. And it's very, very detailed. It's plot and theme and dialogue and mood. Uh, setting, pace, um, characters and character interaction, sequence of events, and then finally other elements and title. That's, when people think about copyright infringement, they don't think it, they don't break it down into those details. They, they, I don't think they necessarily think of it as anything other than I, I just sort of need to show generally um, that I have or have not infringed, or that someone else has or has not infringed. But it really, it really does come down to all of those disparate elements. Talk about that for for just a moment. Well, it does very much so, and those elements are in the Ninth Circuit test for copyright infringement. It's what the court is going to look look at, uh, and what expert witnesses will opine on before a case ever gets to get to the jury. But I think it's important for writers, as you say, from the outset to be thinking about those elements and to take a note out of the court cases and do some reverse engineering. Not all of those elements are equal in terms of protectability, and I think it's important as a writer to know where your creative energy should go. Certainly, uh, uh, structural elements are going to be found to be very generic. It sounds a fair, whereas uniqueness and characters really are quite protectable, as Marvel Comics will tell you. Howard, it's, it's you, interesting. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Uh, John, you, you use the term sans affaire. Why don't you explain that? Well, there are sans affaire really is the, uh, the, the, the structural elements of storytelling, the expectations that uh, there are certain elements which if you put into a piece, uh, an audience expects to see a certain outcome. I think all of the genre, the structure for each genre, there is a structure which is, a unique, which is unique and there is an expectation based on that genre, and no one holds a copyright to that. Uh, in fact, the expectation is that you will use that, and that's part of what is free for the taking and should be employed 
uh, by a sophisticated screenwriter in any particular genre. People are often uh, confused about the difference between plagiarism and copyright. Uh, we, all, we all learn someplace in grade school or junior high that plagiarism was a no-no in academia and that was emphasized throughout college if we went. Uh, and it could even get you thrown out of some colleges. Uh, but plagiarism says uh, that if you use the words or ideas of somebody else, you're supposed to tell us who that person was and where you got it and where the reader cannot find the same material. Um, you can't copyright an idea, and I might add, uh, you can't copyright a story idea, which is a term I use that is not used by lawyers, uh, but it, it's something analogous to Sans Affair that John just talked about. Uh, and very often in the cases I've, I had over a 40-year period, um, the plaintiff would show that they really didn't know that elements of their script um, were used by lots of people before them going back in the 2,500-year year history of Western drama. Uh, and so they would claim, for example, and I'm thinking of a specific case, um, the movie Twister, uh, where the plaintiff essentially seemed to claim they invented the idea of a disaster film and then furthermore thought that they had invented the idea of combining a love story with a disaster film. Both of those things are what John just defined as sans affair, just as if you have to take the greatest um cliched plot of all, boy meets girl. Uh, the boy meets girl, um, but they can't rush to um, uh, get married in the old-fashioned films. Uh, we have another hour and something to go. So boy meets girl, boy wins girl, boy loses girl. Uh, and then, of course, you have what can be called the obligatory scene, Boy, boy wins girl back, uh, just as in a Western, if you don't have a face-to-face -face encounter with the villain, um, the story is incomplete, but that's also true for horror films, war films, and, and a lot of genres. These are story ideas uh, that nobody owns and therefore anybody can, can use them. You know, it's... And you expect and you expect them to use them. If, you, if you're writing a Western and you don't have a reluctant hero and a gang of villains uh, and a bar fight scene and a chase and an ambush and at some point an escape, uh, you're probably leaving money on the table. These are elements that are endemic to the genre and there's a certain expectation uh, that you're going to trick those out in the genre. 
It, it's it's so important. You know, it the the funny detail here. Uh, just today, a new set of Criterion uh, Blu-rays was announced for December, late December. One of which is Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which mm-hmm. uh, resonates in my mind from uh, Howard's comedy class when uh, we he showed us Failsafe and Doctor Strangelove, and pointed out that they are effectively the same movie. Only Failsafe has no jokes and. Uh, most famously, Stanley Kubrick did sue to stop the release of Failsafe, and they eventually uh, reached a settlement that Failsafe wouldn't be put into theaters until Strangelove was out of theaters, but they were released the same year, and it remains really a fascinating curiosity of movie history. So, I, you know, it, it, at, the, at the highest echelons, these questions of common elements uh, continue to, to, to resonate, and it's, it's just so important that writers think about them. Yeah, and you've, you've just hit upon a, a key point. Uh, people often tend to think because there are similar or common elements that if the second one, the one that was created after the first one, uses the same elements in the first one, they must have stolen it, in quotes, from the first one. Uh, John, what is that legal phrase for that kind of well, logic? Well, I, I, I can tell you in lay terms, you think you're the second in line, they're, they're the second in line, but you discover that you're the second in line, that there is an antecedent work uh, that you both might be borrowing from. And in, and in fact, that's, uh, in my testimony, that's probably one of the points that I make uh, more often than any point. Uh, to repeat myself, we have an art form that goes back 2,500 years to the Greeks. Uh, there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of plots, and people tend to focus on plot when they're suing. And uh, I have often written in response to a, a plaintiff when I'm working for a defendant uh, that the, the plaintiff seems not to know the history of his or her own medium, uh, that what they claimed they invented, uh, and of course that's the wrong term, you have invention um, that you patent. Copyright has nothing to do with invention. Uh, And they claim they invented something and they're not aware that other people have done so, often in very famous works. Interestingly, those tend to be structural elements or other set-piece tropes. If you look at Shakespeare, who was the the greatest borrower, I think, in in, in, uh, British literature, uh, when you you remember Shakespeare, you remember characters. You don't really remember plot. You think of Romeo and Juliet and Lady Macbeth and Othello, King Lear, Prince Hal, but you don't immediately think of what happened in those stories. Uh, And Shakespeare gives us a hint at that, and he oftentimes titles the stories with the lead character's name. That's it, it, it's very, very true. And Shakespeare didn't have as many lawyers in his day, I don't think, either. Um, <laughs> and, well, well, they right. didn't have copyright law either, yeah. which is why <laughs> yeah. several of Shakespeare's, uh, especially his history plays, were taken out of uh, Plutarch's Lives, which was a, a series of books that was popular in his day. Um, but without copyright law, he uh, he and his audience had no trouble uh, 
quote, stealing from each other. But, you know, this goes back to the Greeks. Uh, there are several versions of several of the key Greek uh, plays that have come down to us. And most of the stories were in circulation long before uh, Sophocles, etc., uh, got around to writing their works. Uh, I want to talk for a second about collaboration because I think it's so important because almost everyone at some point winds up working with someone else or working with someone else's uh, work or in some way collaborating. And I, I, I love that we have three consecutive sections and uh, they, they are all questions and the answers are so succinct. When should I use a written collaboration agreement? Whenever you're not working alone. Uh, does a collaboration agreement need to be in writing? Legally, no, but practically, yes. And when should we enter into a collaboration agreement? Before you collaborate. Uh, that is so succinct. How do you, what do you say to writers who might feel like, well, I'm sitting down with my wife or my buddy or my uh, childhood best friend or my film school classmate? It's awkward. It's weird. We shouldn't have to have something in writing. You know, our names are together on the title page. How do you sort of soften that lesson for them? Well, interestingly, the collaborations that work very well and that don't work well at all often be begin without a business context. It's not somebody auditioning to be a collaborator. There's a chemistry there. And right. what I would say to them is that's fine, but troubles come along the way. And the very best time to troubleshoot is while you've got an equal bargaining position. Guaranteed, once there are issues down the road, the dynamic will have shifted. The power dynamic will have shifted. And if you can't reach an agreement right up front when the stakes are very low, it will be virtually impossible later to do it when the stakes have changed. Uh, it's, just, it's just a smart, safe thing to do, and it's a good way to test the waters about how you resolve conflict as a collaboration team, uh, because you know, uh, collaboration will not all be smooth sailing. There will be choices that need to be made in the artistic process, and it's how, how you get into the community the community stream and resolve these is important, not just for the business end, but also for the artistic end. Wise. Very smart. Howard, anything to add to that? Um, uh, over over uh, the decades, I've had students come to me with various kinds of problems, many of which are in this book. And one of the most commonest is this, the student or former student will say to me, Howard, I've got a problem. Now, right away, I know that I have a 50-50 chance of hearing it was a problem with a partnership that went bad. Hmm. Uh, and if their next sentence is, um, I sat down with uh, my, my classmate, my girlfriend, um, my buddy, and, and I, I know where this story is going. Uh, I, I can't emphasize enough that especially if you like the person, there's some kind of affinity with the person, um, you've got to get in writing 
your mutual expectations, not only of how you're going to share the fabulous wealth that comes out of this collaboration, but what you're going to do if you get a divorce. It's exactly mm -hmm. like a divorce. Uh, you have such emotional investment in the relationship that it clouds your judgment about what you and the other person are doing professionally. And as John said, if you don't do it beforehand, when you're still friends or lovers or whatever, this can be a really bitter episode in your life. One of the credited producers on La La Land uh, is Damien Chazelle's ex-wife, because <laughs> when it all began, they were married. And uh, I can tell you firsthand, the uh, Lebanese filmmaker, Ziad Dueri, who was recently nominated for the film The Insult a few years ago, uh, I interviewed him for, for the audio commentary for that. And uh, he gets co-screenwriting credit with uh, the woman who was his wife at the time they wrote it and who was his ex-wife by the time they were finished with it, uh, at least by the time he was finished shooting. And um, it, it's, it's funny you say that because people think, oh, we'll do you know, divorce. But these stories happen very often where uh, the, the people will start writing something together and they're married and then the marriage goes south and, uh, and then the, the show goes south with them. Jerry Anderson, the famous uh, you know, creator of Thunderbirds and Space 1999, he and his wife Sylvia were married and co-producers of Space 1999 in the first season. By the end of the first season, they were divorced and it jeopardized the second season. So I mean, these stories happen. It's reality, and there are some famous ones. And I and it's it's just I think it's really important that uh, that people take that uh, under very serious advisement. So I, I give you both a great deal of credit for going to those very succinct details. Uh, well, my last that. question. It, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I appreciate that, and in fact, I think we may have identified a whole new genre. There is the uh, the collaboration problem genre. There is. There is a piece that uh, Howard and I were somewhat inclined to leave on the cutting room floor that UC Press uh, wisely encouraged us to put in as Appendices B, which is an amalgam of the type of problems that two writers will have when they're collaborating together. Uh, so in a lot of ways, I think that's worth the price of admission alone. <laughs> it, it's, it really is. Um, last question then for, you know, so that we're not scaring writers away from the writing process, because I think the great thing about this book is that it is, it's not a, it's not a Halloween treat that sort of is meant to put the fear of God into writers. It's meant to give them a sense of confidence and a sense of assertiveness and give them power and information moving forward so that they, they know what to do and what not to do. Um, for, for any up-and-coming writers, anybody who's taking their first leap into screenwriting, what, just as a, as a basic principle, you know, they, I, I'm going to recommend they get the book, but just as a basic, basic principle, what's the first thing that they should always keep in mind uh, before they even put a single word on, on paper? Don't worry about copyright. Mm. You are freer than you think. And we make that point quite explicit in the very beginning that a major part of our motivation is not to do what most lawyers do. Uh, you, most people go to lawyers to have somebody tell them no or to tell them, can I get away with this? Uh, we do that aplenty, but we also make it clear as we've discussed before, that 
you are free to take any element that's appeared in any old play that's out of copyright or any novel or any other written work and make it your own. You are free, in fact, we don't have time to go into this, but you are free, in fact, to take elements of other people's contemporary work if it's material that's not protected by copyright, that is, to use that phrase again, sans affair. Um, and don't be so inhibited. Uh, don't think you have to buy the life rights to somebody who you're interested necessarily. Uh, and besides which, you're not a lawyer. If you do, the company who's interested in your story has lawyers, and they'll tell you if you do. And you are free to take elements, to repeat myself, that other people who you see working um, have used. You don't have to buy the rights to somebody's book as long as you're taking elements that are not protectable, that are not um, that are not subject to copyright, such as ideas, titles, general dramatic structures, etc. Interesting. I, I, you know, the uh, career in the arts, artistic endeavors are difficult. Uh, yeah, it, it's difficult enough as an artist working alone, but to try to turn your 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 artistic endeavors into a career makes it that much more difficult. And I think it's important to align your expectations to have a pretty good understanding about why you're pursuing your craft. Uh, so for a, a writer with that blank page, both in terms of a project or the career, I would say actually go to the epilogue first and consider the, the advice in the section entitled Death of Copyright. What does copyright mean to your career? What do knowing the rules uh, uh, allow you to do and not do in terms of your creative enterprise? But moreover, have an understanding of why you're pursuing your art form um, so that your expectations are fulfilled. It doesn't always end in a sale, but it should end in, in something that allows you to move on to the next project and the project after that. This, this is a long-term practice. Uh, and I, I think anything that doesn't encourage you and serve you well in pursuing it as a long-term practice is not helpful. And I, I hope this book, uh, in that regard, uh, if only in that regard, is very, very helpful. Because I think that the, at the end of the day, uh, having that clear expectation empowers you in your career. And one of the many tools in the toolkit that you have for longevity is a clear understanding of the legal rules. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This is so helpful and so instrumental. I, I recommend this to everyone who, who intends to put a story down at any point in their lives. Creativity and Copyright is the book, Legal Essentials for Screenwriters and Creative Artists by John L. Geiger and Howard Suber. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much.